Good evening. Good to be together tonight. Tonight we're going to begin a study of the Gospel of Mark. I don't know about you, I'm just speaking for me personally, maybe you feel the same way. I want, but even more than that, I need to hear about Jesus. I want and I need to study about Jesus' life. The week can be so long. There are a lot of different things going on in our lives. There are a lot of different things going on in our community. And as a result of that, we need to hear about Jesus. We should want to fall deeper in love with Jesus. We should want to develop relationships with Jesus that are deeper and greater and more intimate than what they are right now. We should want to become more like Jesus on a daily basis in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, and even in the thoughts that we think. As Christians, that's what our lives are all about. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our Savior. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our great high priest. And each and every day that we live, each and every week that we live, we should want to know Him more. I don't think there's a better way to do that than by walking through one of the four books that details his life for us. And that's what I want us to do. We're going to begin tonight into the foreseeable future. I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to last, but I want us to spend some time thinking about the Gospel of Mark. And in thinking about the Gospel of Mark, I want us to think about and to grow in our relationships with our Lord Jesus. Before we jump into chapter 1 and verse 1, though, there's some context that we need to talk about. There's a foundation that we need to lay. It's like building a house. You're not going to build the house up until you first lay the foundation. That's what I want us to do tonight in introducing the book of Mark. I want us to lay a foundation so that as we walk through this book together, we have something to build up. The Gospel of Mark wasn't originally written to us. And that's true with any book that we find in the Bible, especially when we think about the book that we are going to be studying. We're not the first people to read Mark. We're not the first people to study Mark. 2,000 years ago, Mark was written by a very specific author to a specific audience for a very specific purpose. And so there's some context here that needs to be uncovered. There's some context here that we need to talk about. If you have one of the the fill-in-the-blank outlines sitting in front of you, you might be a little bit scared. You might be thinking we're going to be here for just a little while. I promise we're going to get through it in a timely manner. Uh, There's just a lot of information to cover here and a lot to think about as we take a step into the Gospel of Mark. I want us to ask four main questions tonight. Question number one, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It might be needless to say, but something that might be helpful to point out, all four Gospels, including Mark, are anonymous. When you read the text of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they do not name the author. There was a title that was given. It seems whenever the the Gospels started to circulate, different titles were given to them to designate the author and to separate them, to distinguish them from one another. The title that this book was given is still in our English translations. The Gospel According to Mark. Even though that title is not original, even though that title would not have been written by Mark's 
hand. Whenever we look throughout antiquity, everybody is in agreement that this book was written by Mark, the Mark that we find throughout the pages of the New Testament. I think that that's something that we can be very confident about. So the question is, what do we know about Mark? What does the New Testament tell us about him? Well, the first thing that I think we need to suggest is that he was an associate of the Apostle Paul. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. For instance, if you go to Acts chapter 12 and verse number 25, you find John Mark accompanying Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. Throughout the book of Acts, you find three different missionary journeys that are associated with the Apostle Paul. John Mark went on the first one with him. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, the Bible says that Mark was there to assist them. In other words, you could also translate it saying he was there to be their helper. But if you skip down just a few verses to Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, for some unknown reason, we don't know why, Mark packed up all his stuff and and left. He left the missionary journey and went back to his mother's house in the city of Jerusalem. We don't know why he did that. But as you can imagine, one of the results of that is it produced a pretty rocky relationship with the Apostle Paul. A relationship that's emphasized just a couple chapters later. In Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 39, Paul and Barnabas are thinking about going on a second missionary journey. Barnabas wants to take Mark along with them. Perhaps that's because when we go to Colossians 4 and verse 10, Mark is Barnabas' cousin. They have a familial relationship there. Barnabas wants to take along Mark, and Paul says, no way. He says, I'm not taking Mark. I'm not giving him another chance. He left us on the first missionary journey. How can we trust him now if we're going to go out again? How can we trust that he's not going to leave us again? And that caused such a sharp disagreement between them, if you remember the story, that they split up. Barnabas took John Mark and went one direction. Paul took Silas and went another direction. I think you could argue that that was actually a good thing. That this sharp disagreement resulted in two different missionary teams preaching the same gospel going to two different places. So perhaps this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas as a result of John Mark wasn't such a bad thing. Paul's relationship with Mark was really rocky on the front end. But if you go to Colossians 4 and verse 10 or Philemon verse 24, you find just a few years later that the relationship has been repaired. For instance, Mark is present with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment, during the three years that he would have been in prison in Rome. Then you fast forward a few more years. In 2 Timothy, Paul is about to be executed. He's going through his second Roman imprisonment. And in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, Paul actually requests for Timothy to bring John Mark to him. He says, I want you to bring Mark to me. And here's the reason, because he is very useful to me in ministry. That's a repaired relationship, isn't it? You see the beauty of that forgiveness that existed between two brothers in Christ where back in Acts 15, Paul said, there's no way John Mark's coming with me. And I'm willing to split up this missionary team as a result of that. Well, in 2 Timothy 4, that relationship has been repaired and John Mark was useful to the Apostle Paul in his ministry as he had fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith. So the first thing we need to say about Mark is that he was an associate of Paul. But one thing, another thing we find out about him in the New Testament is that he was also a very close associate of Peter. 
Maybe you could say that he got the best of both worlds. He got to hang out with the Apostle Paul. He had a very close relationship with the Apostle Peter. For instance, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, when Peter was in prison and the church in Jerusalem was assembled praying for, praying for Peter, where were they? They were at the house of Mark's mother, praying for Peter, praying that Peter will be delivered. But I think most telling about their relationship, the relationship that exists between Peter and Mark, is at the very end of Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, he said, I'm sending you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Just like Paul oftentimes identifies Timothy as his son in the faith. Here, Peter is identifying Mark as his son in the faith. They had a very close relationship. A question that people oftentimes ask is, how was Mark able to write a gospel? If he wasn't there, if he wasn't present during the life of Jesus, if he wasn't one of the twelve apostles, then how was he able to write a biography about Jesus' life? Well, of course, he did that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But what people have suggested all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd century is that Mark is actually recording the memories, the teaching, and the preaching of the Apostle Peter. That what we read in the Gospel of Mark is perhaps what Peter remembered and what he taught and what he preached from his experiences with Jesus how he spent three and a half years with Jesus. So that very close relationship is what perhaps produced this book that we're going to be studying over the next little while. When you go to Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, there's a really, really odd story. And maybe you've read this before, maybe you haven't. But this is in the context of when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice the Bible says that a young man followed him, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay, that's kind of a weird story. That's kind of an odd story. So the question naturally arises, why is this story included? It doesn't include anything. It doesn't, it doesn't progress the story of the gospel. It doesn't have any impact on the narrative. It's just this story that's set off on the side about this random young man who's running away without any clothes on, and it's only recorded in the gospel of Mark. It's not recorded in Matthew. It's not recorded in Luke. It's not recorded in John. This is only recorded in Mark. Why do you think that is? Perhaps this could be a reference in Mark's gospel to himself. Mark would have been a young man, it seems, with the reference of the church praying in his mother's house. It wasn't Mark's house, but it was his mother's house. Perhaps he was the young man who was attempting to follow Jesus and ran away, leaving behind his linen cloth. So perhaps Mark actually references himself in this gospel, but we can't know that for sure. Question number two. Who was this gospel written to and where was it written from? We're going to pair those two questions together because I believe that they actually have the same answer. I believe that this gospel, the gospel according to Mark, was written from the city of Rome to the city of Rome. And there are a few, I think, very good reasons to believe that. First, like we said a few minutes ago, Mark was with Paul and Peter in the city of Rome. We see that in the New Testament. Colossians 4, Philemon, 2 Timothy 4, and 1 Peter 5. He was present with both of those apostles in the city of Rome. So where would Mark have written this gospel from? 
The only guess, I think the most logical guess that we could suggest is that he's writing this from the city of Rome. This view that he's writing from Rome to Rome is not a new idea. This is something they suggested going all the way back in antiquity, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. When you read the Gospel of Mark, he oftentimes translates Aramaic words into Greek. That's significant because Aramaic was the language that people spoke in Palestine. What they spoke in the promise, what would have been in the Old Testament, the promise land. They spoke the Aramaic language. If Mark was writing to Jews, he would have no reason to translate the Aramaic words because they wouldn't have been able to read them. So it seems because he translates these words that he's writing to a Gentile audience, a Gentile audience in the city of Rome. Hand in hand with that, he explains Jewish customs. If he was writing to Jews, he wouldn't have to explain Jewish customs. So it seems that he's writing to Gentiles. He uses Latin words, which would have been very well known to the people in the city of Rome, words that they would have used and been familiar with. And this is one that I came across since we printed those outlines, so sorry about that. But there's a mention of a guy named Rufus. In Mark chapter 15 and verse number 21, Mark talks about Rufus and Alexander who were sons of Simon of Cyrene, the one who helped Jesus bear his cross. Well, if you go to Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, the only other time that that name Rufus shows up is in the letter that Paul writes to the Romans. The letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome. So perhaps the mention of Rufus helps us to establish this idea that this was written from Rome to Rome. Question number three, when was the Gospel of Mark written? We don't know is I think the shortest answer, the most simplest answer. But what a lot of people have suggested is that the Gospel of Mark could have been written anywhere from the late 50s to the early 60s AD. That would put Mark in Rome whenever Paul and Peter were in Rome. Clement of Alexandria, an ancient church father, suggested that Mark wrote this letter while Peter was still living. So if he wrote this, this gospel while Peter was still living, he would have had to have written it somewhere before Peter died in about 64 or 65 A.D. If this is the case, Mark was the first gospel to be written, and there are some who even suggest that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source whenever they wrote their gospels. Then what I believe to be the most significant question the question that's going to have the most impact on what we're going to be talking about in the Gospel of Mark is what are the key themes? What should we keep our antennas up for? What, would, what should we be looking for in the Gospel of Mark? Well, the first thing that we need to mention is the structure because everything flows from that. If you look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 through Mark chapter 8 and verse 30, he details Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. If you look at the, about the last half of the book, chapter 8 and verse 31 through chapter 16 and verse 20, he details Jesus' journey to and weeks spent in the city of Jerusalem. Of course, including His suffering, His death, His burial, His resurrection. The turning point comes in chapter 8 and verse 31 where Jesus tells His apostles for the very first time that He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over by the chief priests and scribes. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried and raised on the third day is the turning point in the Gospel according to Mark. Another thing that we're going to mention about this book and something we need to mention before we wade into it is that Mark is very fast-moving. 
It's an action-oriented gospel. If you look at his audience, if he's writing to the city of Rome, they were very fast-moving, action-oriented people. Kind of like people who live in the United States, right? There's a reason that fast food is so popular because you're able to get it very quickly. The Gospel of Mark is kind of that way. It's fast-moving. It's action-oriented, especially in the first half of the letter, in the first half of the Gospel. Mark details Jesus doing so many different things. And sometimes he doesn't give a lot of detail. Like things that Matthew and Luke give a lot of detail and attention to, Mark just skips right over them. For instance, the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew 4 and in Luke chapter 4, that's about 10 or 11 verses long. It's, it's pretty, they go and tell the entire story. In Mark, it's only two verses long. Mark is very fast moving. There is a point though when Mark presses the brakes a little bit. There is a point when Mark slows down, and that's in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem to begin the last week of His life. Two-thirds of Mark are dedicated to Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. The last third of Mark is dedicated to just one week. The last week that Jesus lived that ultimately resulted in His death, burial, and resurrection. Mark is in a hurry to get Jesus to Jerusalem so that He can slow down and talk to us in great detail about the suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf. Number three, I think that this Gospel gives us a very balanced view of Jesus' identity. Whenever we walk into the Gospel of Mark, maybe one of the questions that we're asking is, who is Jesus? I want to get to know Him just a little bit better. Well, what we find in Mark is that Jesus is completely human. Jesus Christ came to earth and lived life as a man. You read through those different references in Mark, we find that Jesus had emotion. Jesus experienced fatigue. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He knew what it was like to be tired. Sometimes He would sigh. Sometimes He was joyful. Sometimes He was angry throughout the Gospel of Mark. The Hebrew writer comments on that, saying Jesus was tempted in all aspects as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is completely human, experiencing the emotions and the feelings and the difficulties that we go through in life. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. But then you look at the flip side of that coin. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is also divine. He's the Son of Man. Yes, He's human, but He's also divine. You go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and think about what it looks like for Jesus to be the Son of Man, where He's presented before the Ancient of Days, and He's given a kingdom and glory and dominion and rule. He's the Son of God. The one who has a very special, one-of-a-kind, unique relationship with the Father. In John chapter 5, it's an equal relationship with the Father. Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One of God, the prophet, priest, and king that was predicted so many different times in the Old Testament Scriptures. Here, He finally comes on the scene in the Gospel of Mark. Yes, Jesus is fully human but He's also fully divine. Yes, He knows what it's like to go through the difficulties that we experience on a daily basis, but He is also God in the flesh. Another thing that, that Mark wants to emphasize to us about Jesus' identity, I think this is the reason He slows down in the last few chapters, in the last third of His book, is because Jesus is the suffering servant. 
Jesus is the one who suffered on our behalf. Think about how people viewed the Christ back in the first century. He was going to be a war hero. And he was going to fight against all different kinds of people. He was going to conquer nations and set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. He was going to be a man of bloodshed and strength and victory. And we see a hint of that. In the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, in the first part, Jesus has control over death. He has control over disease. He has control over the weather. He has control over demonic possession. Yes, Jesus is powerful. And Jesus can conquer anything that is set up in front of Him. But is that the way that He ultimately achieved His victory? It's not. Jesus didn't achieve His victory by conquering. He achieved His victory by being conquered. He didn't achieve His victory by fighting. He achieved His victory by suffering. And Mark wants us to come face to face with that reality. Jesus suffered for me. Jesus died for me. And He died for you. Number four, throughout the Gospel of Mark, you can see the references up on the screen, there's something that's oftentimes called the Messianic secret. This is where Jesus will tell something to His immediate disciples or He'll perform some kind of miracle and tell them, hey, don't tell anybody. Keep this a secret. Keep this to yourself. And usually they go out and tell everybody. What's the reason for that? Why would Jesus want to keep His identity or His miracles a secret? The way that it's oftentimes been explained, and I think the the best explanation, in my opinion, is that Jesus doesn't want to jeopardize His ministry. If the Jews knew of someone going around claiming to be the Son of God and and practicing these miracles, and He was open about that, just blowing it out in front of everybody, perhaps that could have resulted in an untimely death, some commentators suggest. So regardless of what the reason is, it's something we need to be aware of. It's something we're going to see, especially when Jesus performs miracles, is what many times people call the messianic secret. Kind of in contrast to that, you find Jesus' popularity among the common people. That's all throughout the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is constantly surrounded by crowds and people are pressing in on Him on every side and they follow Him wherever He goes. Of course, that produces jealousy or envy in the hearts of the religious leaders. It causes them ultimately to put Jesus on a cross to plan to kill Him from just the third chapter. So the third chapter, they begin their plot, but it doesn't happen until later in the 15th chapter. But one thing we're going to see over and over again is wherever Jesus goes, a crowd goes. Wherever Jesus goes, He's very popular among common people. That is, until when He's tried by Pontius Pilate. When He's tried by Pontius Pilate, everyone turns His back on Him, crying out as a result of the influence of the religious leaders saying, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. To me, this is what's most significant about our study of the Gospel of Mark. And this is something we're going to be emphasizing time and time again. What do we learn when we walk away from the Gospel of Mark? How does it change the way that we live on a daily basis? I would suggest that Mark helps us more than any other Gospel to understand what it means to be a disciple a student, a follower of Jesus. Mark helps us to understand what life looks like as a servant. He teaches us that in a couple of different ways. First, he teaches us that by Jesus' positive example. Through Jesus' words, he teaches us what it means to be his follower. 
He, he's he's going to say things like, if anyone wants to follow me, then first let him deny himself, let him pick up his cross and follow after me every single day of his life. Through Jesus' actions, he's going to teach us what it looks like to live as a servant. Jesus said in our scripture reading, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 5, which was just one verse by the way, um, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve. Well, how did Jesus ultimately serve humanity? He gave His life as a ransom for many. Jesus' positive example teaches us what it looks like to be His disciple, to be His servant on a daily basis. But there's also another side to this. The Gospel of Mark also teaches us what it's like to be a disciple and a servant through the negative example of the apostles. I heard one of my professors say one time that in Mark, the disciples should be labeled as the duh disciples because they're constantly not getting it. They're constantly messing up. Their hearts are hardened. When you look at Mark 6, Mark 7, and Mark 8, they go through periods where they're not trusting in Jesus and they're not understanding who Jesus is. They're not understanding what Jesus can do. So when we think about being disciples, we look at Jesus as our example. Here's the perfect example of what it looks like to be a student, to be a follower, a student, a disciple, a servant. And then we look at the disciples and we learn what not to do. We learn how to be a disciple and a servant, not just through Jesus' positive example, but also the disciples' negative example. So maybe you felt like that was a whirlwind. But I hope that that gives us some information that we need as we plunge into a study of the Gospel of Mark. It's like what I said. Life is hard, and we go through things that are difficult. Every week, I want to hear about Jesus. Every week, I need to study about Jesus, I think you have that want and you have that need too. So my hope, my prayer, my aim as we study the Gospel of Mark is not just that we'll learn more about Jesus, but that we will be transformed by Jesus. That we will live every day as His disciples, every day as His servants, here not to be served, but to serve and to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. What an awesome Savior we serve. Maybe it's the case that tonight you need to make that decision to follow Jesus. Maybe it's the case that you haven't been following Jesus very well as a Christian and you would like for us to pray for you. We'd like to make that opportunity available as together we stand and sing.